I want you to note here in a very particular way that in the 12th chapter, and we'll see in the succeeding chapter, that there are no miracles. And we have stated before that Mark is the gospel of action with the emphasis on miracles. Now, according to this premise, it would seem that the action now is slowing down to a standstill. But this is actually the lull before the storm. I'm not sure, but what we've got a lot of action in chapter 12 and 13 that's coming up. And let me give you the outline that we have here. And we have really used some unusual alliteration here. The letter Q is very seldom used. But listen, Jesus quickens the battle with the religious rulers with the parable of the vineyard. And that's the first 12 verses. Verse 13 through 17, Jesus queers the plot of the Pharisees and Herodians about paying taxes to Caesar. And then Jesus quells the skepticism of the Sadducees concerning the resurrection. That's verses 18 through 27. And then Jesus quites the mind of the scribe about the greatest commandment. And then Jesus questions the Pharisees about the Messiah and quotes Psalm 110. That's verses 35 through 40. And then finally, Jesus qualifies scriptural giving by evaluating the two mites of the widow. And that's verses 41 through 44. Now we are coming, you can see, to a great deal of action that's taking place here. And the Lord Jesus now is the Passover lamb, and he's put up here for close inspection before he's slaughtered. Because you remember that the Passover lamb was put up to be inspected. And all the waves now of man's wrath will roll over his head. And this is not a period of quieting in action. We are seeing here the fiercest encounter with these religious rulers. And both sides bring up their heavy artillery. And they make every arrangement in preparation for the battle of heaven and hell, light and darkness and God and Satan. This could hardly be called a period, I think, of inaction or cessation of hostilities. The three years of periodic skirmishes of Jesus with the religious rulers breaks out in a bitter verbal encounter, and he takes the initiative. He wins the victory in the verbal area, and they cease to try to trap him here. They had hoped to force him to say something that would turn the people against him. All these questions were loaded and he precipitated this action by giving the most pointed, plain, and direct parable of his ministry. And that's the one that opens this chapter. The parable of the vineyard and the meaning is obvious. Will you notice this now as we get into it? And I'm beginning reading chapter 12, verse 1. He began to speak unto them by parables and a certain man planted a vineyard and set a hedge about it, digged a place for the wine fat, built a tower, let it out to husbandmen, and went into a far country. Now, this vineyard is that which Isaiah called it, a vineyard he brought out of Egypt, that vine, he planted it. That's the nation Israel. Gave them a 
God-given religion, the only people that ever had a God-given religion and the visible presence of God. Churches never had that. Now he says, and this is for the religious rulers of his day. Listen to this. And at the season he sent to the husbandman a servant that he might receive from the husbandman of the fruit of the vineyard. And they caught him and beat him and sent him away empty. And again he sent unto them another servant. And at him they cast stones and wounded him in the head, sent him away shamefully handled. And again he sent another, and him they killed, and many others, beating some, killing some, having yet therefore one son, his well-beloved. He sent him also, last unto them, saying, They will reverence my son. But those husbandmen said among themselves, This is the heir, come let us kill him, and the inheritance shall be ours." And they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. What shall therefore the Lord of the vineyard do? He'll come and destroy the husbandman, and will give the vineyard unto others. And have ye not read the Scripture, the stone which the builders rejected is become the head of the corner? This was the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. And they sought to lay on him. But feared the people, for they knew that he had spoken this parable against them, and they left him and went their way. Now, I think it's quite obvious what he's talking about in this parable here. The servants that God sent were the prophets, and the certain man that had the vineyard is God the Father. The vineyard is the nation Israel. God chose and protected this nation. The husbandmen were the religious rulers. And therefore, he sent his son. That's the Lord Jesus Christ, his well-beloved son. And you remember, he answered and said, I'm not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And he came to the world also. Our Lord here is making a deliberate and direct thrust at the religious rulers who stood before him. They had already plotted his death, and he brought their plans out into the light. He knew what was in man. He told the religious rulers what they would do. He prophesied their every step and anticipated their every move, and he charges them with murder before they kill him. I think this is a remarkable incident, friends. He predicts the judgment of the religious rulers. And if you want to see that, move to 70 A.D. when Titus destroyed that city, took them into captivity, and look at the Colosseum in Rome, and it was Jewish slave labor that built that. Now, will you notice we have here, this is something quite wonderful. The stone which the builders refused has become the headstone of the corner. That's not another parable. What we have here, this is a two-in-one parable. And Christ was a stumbling stone and a rock of offense to the religious rulers, but many of the people turned to him. And he became the headstone of the corner in the future when he comes again to the earth. And we find that Zechariah spoke of this in Zechariah 4, 7. Who art thou, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel thou shalt become a plain. He shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, Grace, grace unto it. 
Now, the religious rulers obviously would have taken the Lord Jesus at this time and executed him, but they're afraid of the people, you see. Now, this parable of the vineyard set off a verbal war. Notice this. And they send unto him, I'm reading verse 13, certain of the Pharisees and of the Rhodians to catch him in his words. And when they were come, they say unto him, Master, we know that thou art true and carest for no man, for thou regardest not the person of man, but teachest the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? And I think this is a masterpiece. We saw it in Matthew, but look here again. Shall we give or shall we not give? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, oh me, they were hypocrites. They flattered him. He called them hypocrites. He didn't accept it. He did, by the way, from Nicodemus. But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said unto them, Why tempt ye me? Bring me a penny that I may see it. Why did he ask them for a penny? He's going to use their own coin, that's to be sure. But I don't think he had one himself. Just think of that. The Lord of glory in this world didn't have a dime in his pocket, friends. Can you imagine that? How wonderful he was. He didn't have a coin. He didn't have a lot of credit cards in his pocket like I got here in my pocket and you've got in yours today. Can't use them very much, but I got the credit cards. He had nothing like that. He said, let me have a coin. They gave him a coin, and he asked them the question. You see, if he'd said you're to pay tribute to Caesar, then that would have meant that he would put Caesar ahead of Moses and of the Messiah. And if he had said, well, you're not to give tribute, that would be insurrection, would it not, in that day? They thought they had him, but they didn't have him. He says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Then they marveled at him, and they certainly did. And by the way, that reveals that the child of God has a twofold responsibility. In fact, more than a twofold. Someone said to me some time ago, my father's in the hospital, my mother is sick, and I have now this money to give to the church. Should I give it to the church or should I help them? And I said, well, if you didn't help them, what would be their situation? Well, they said they'd actually be in dire need. They'd really have to accept charity. Well, I said, your responsibility is to them. You see, we can get some very pious ideas today. You and I do have a responsibility to government. Now, I think I've got too much responsibility. Frankly, I felt my income tax is this year. They pinched me. They're hurt. And I felt that as I saw the way that some of the senators are living today and the big time they can have, and the way that I saw the corruption that's taking place in all areas today of government, I resent very much paying income tax. I must confess, but I ought to pay some. I recognize I have a responsibility there. I have a responsibility to my loved ones. I have a responsibility to my church. I have a responsibility to you today to give the Word of God out. I have no business to try to promote myself or to promote some organization. I'm to promote the Word of God. I think we all have responsibilities, and that's what our Lord is saying. You have a responsibility to Caesar, discharge it, but that doesn't relieve you of responsibility to God. My, this was a marvelous 
incident that he turned into a parable. Give me a coin. And with that coin, he illustrated, you see a great truth. Now, will you notice that he silenced these Herodians who wanted to put the house of Herod into power. Verse 18, Then come unto him the Sadducees, which say there's no resurrection. They were the liberals of the day. They denied this supernatural, and they asked him, saying, Master, Moses wrote unto us, If a man's brother die and leave his wife behind him and leave no children, that his brother should take his wife, raise up seed unto his brother. And that, by the way, is accurate. That was the illustration in the book of Ruth, by the way. That's the law of the kinsman redeemer. They were accurate, you see. They knew what the Scripture said. Now there were seven brethren, and the first took a wife, and dying left no seed. The second took her and died, neither left he any seed. And the third likewise, the seven had her and left no seed. Last of all, the woman died also. That's a ridiculous illustration, isn't it? Well, that could be duplicated maybe today in Hollywood or in our contemporary society, but it's ridiculous. Verse 23, their question is, "...in the resurrection, therefore, when they shall rise, whose wife shall she be of them? For the seven had her to wife. And Jesus answering said unto them, Do ye not therefore err, because ye know not the Scriptures, nor the power of God?" And I would say that that is the difficulty today with those that are so critical of the Scriptures. I notice that right now, these that are promoting a program to cut down the population explosion, and I agree with them, though, they say that it's contrary to the Bible, that God said to Adam, you know, be fruitful and multiply. Well, God said that to Adam, but he didn't say that to the Adamses today. He's not talking to this present generation. If you were the only man on the earth and you and your wife were the only couple, I imagine that's what he'd say to you because he did repeat it again to Noah when Noah was very much alone. But he didn't repeat that for us today. I can't find that he's given that to the Christian even. May I say to you how utterly ridiculous. Now, it reveals on the part of these folks a woeful ignorance of the Bible. And if they showed that much ignorance in other fields, they would be declared ignorant, so ignorant, that they ought not to be heard. And yet today, these people spout off about the Bible. Well, of course, the crowd that listens to them is a crowd that is as ignorant of the Bible as they are. And our Lord said, there are two things wrong with you, Sadducees. You are ignorant of the Scripture. You are also ignorant of the power of God. And the answer, of course, to that is just simply this. Well, let's let our Lord answer it. Jesus answering said unto them, Do ye not therefore err, because ye know not the Scriptures, neither the power of God? For when they shall rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels which are in heaven. Now, that doesn't mean that a man and woman who are together down here can't be together in heaven, but they won't be together as man and wife at all. You're not establishing a home up there by any means and raising children. That's the thing that he is saying to them here. And this is a very important thing. Now he says, as touching the dead, that they rise. Have you not read in the book of Moses how in the bush God spake unto him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, 
the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Ye therefore do greatly err. They don't know the power of God. Moses is not dead. Abraham's not dead. Isaac is not dead. Their bodies were buried there in Hebron, but they're not dead. They've gone to be with him. And that's where the Christians are today, that die in the Lord, friends. May I say, he's devastating in his answer to these religious rulers. Now, we have another one that comes at him here. And in verse 28, why he comes and Jesus quites the mind of the scribe about the greatest commandment. Listen to this. One of the scribes came and having heard them reasoning together and perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. That's, I think, the greatest doctrinal statement in the Old Testament. Hear, O Israel, Jehovah, our Elohim, Jehovah, our one God, is a trinity. Elohim, he's one Jehovah, one God. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. By the way, do you keep this commandment, my friend? If there are those listening to me today that say that they don't need Christ as a Savior, that they obey God, I'm asking you the question, do you love God with all your heart, your mind, and your soul? Well, if you don't, you're breaking his commandments. You need a Savior, and I need a Savior. And that's the reason. I don't measure up here. I wish I did. I love him, though, but not like I should. And the second is like, namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbors thyself. How about that one, friends? Do you measure up? There's none other commandment greater than these. Now, if you can measure up here, maybe you could apply for salvation on your own merit. But until you do, you're going to need a Savior. And the scribe said unto him, Well, Master, thou hast said the truth, for there is one God, there is none other but he. But to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, with all the strength, and to love his neighbors himself is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. It certainly is. And when Jesus saw that he answered discreetly, he said unto him, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. And friends, if you see that you don't measure up and that this is it and that you haven't measured up and you need a Savior, may I say to you, then you'll turn to him. We're told that after this, no man after that does ask him any question. But, you know, he's going to ask a few questions. Now he turns to the Pharisees and scribes. And when Jesus answered and said while he taught in the temple, How say the scribes that Christ is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, till I make thine enemies thy footstool. David therefore himself calleth him Lord, and whence is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. And friends, right there is where he taught his own virgin birth. You see, the Son is always inferior to the Father, not superior. We're living in a day where evolution says the Son is superior to the Father. That's not true. It's the other way around. Now, if the Son is inferior to the Father, how could David call his great-great-great-great-grandson, how can he call him his Lord? 
Well, the only way he can is for him to be the Lord, friends. And the only way he can be the Lord is not to be just David's son, but he's going to have to be virgin-born. My, this is a great thought that our Lord is giving here. And the common people heard him gladly. That's verse 37. I want to pick up 38. And he said unto them in his doctrine, Beware of the scribes, which love to go in long clothing. They love salutations in the marketplaces, and the chief seats in the synagogues, and the uppermost rooms at feasts, which devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. These shall receive greater damnation. In other words, privilege creates responsibility here, and believe me, he certainly denounced them here. Now, here we have the final incident in this chapter, and Jesus qualifies scriptural giving by evaluating the two mites of the widow. This is a marvelous way to end this chapter, and this is right at the conclusion of his ministry. Listen to this. Jesus sat over against the treasury, and behold how the people cast money into the treasury, and many that were rich cast in much. He was there watching them give. Somebody might say, what authority does he have? He has the authority today to stand over when the offering's taken in your church, or when you are called to give to some cause for God's cause, his work. He's there to watch you, friends. And he doesn't watch what you give. The principle is he watches how much you keep for yourself. There came a certain poor widow, and she threw in two mites, which made a farthing. And by the way, she gave two pennies. The important thing to note is he noted that the rich cast in much. They were big givers. Oh, my how we love the big givers. The rich gave, they gave generously. But you know, he didn't note that. He watched that widow, and she gave two mites, and compared to the wealth of that temple, friends, what she gave wasn't worth a snap of your fingers. But you know what he did? He took those two mites, and he just kissed them into the coin and the gold of heaven, and it made it more valuable than anything that any rich man ever gave. You know why? because he saw what she kept for herself. She gave all to him. My, I tell you, that's the way he measures. We say today, am I to give a tenth to God? My friend, how much do you keep for yourself? It's not how much you give to him. You're not required to give a tenth. The question is, how much do you really love him? And I think that today, that there are those who ought to give more than a tenth. Gracious, I think there's some people today ought to give 50% what they make to the Lord. And by the way, you'd get a better deduction on your income tax if you did give more to the Lord. May I say to you that he is the one that watches how people give. And it's not what they put in. Because that widow didn't give anything, friends. I don't think that anybody else, the treasurer, didn't pay much attention to it. Just two penny. But our Lord kissed it into the goal of heaven. She sure did give a whole lot. Now today, friends, as we come here to this 13th chapter of the Gospel of Mark, again, I want to repeat that Mark's account here is one of action. We've emphasized that with the emphasis upon miracles. The last chapter, we saw that there weren't many, but there was action. Now we come to this chapter, and there's no miracles, but there's a great deal of action. 
but it's future action, you see. The action hasn't come to a standstill. There's more action here than any preceding chapter, but it's in the future. This chapter records the eschatological events which will end this age. And the catastrophic events of the Great Tribulation are given. And the second coming of Christ is graphically described. And my friend, this is action geared to divine power. And that's greater than atomic power, by the way. Now, we'll notice as we go through this chapter, and it actually is not as long as some others that we've had, that we will call attention to some of the things we've had before, because the Olivet Discourse that's given in Mark is much briefer than the one given in Matthew. In fact, this is an abridged edition. It's a truncated edition. That's been true of Mark all the way through, except in some notable instances where he gives the longest account of certain things than any other gospel. But his policy is to abbreviate everything. And here we have that brought out. Now you have in this chapter, and we have majored on alliteration, so here we go. In the first four verses, we have the presentation of questions by the disciples to Jesus on top of the Mount of Olives. Verses 5 and 7, panorama of this age. And then, verses 8 through 13, we have persecution preceding the Great Tribulation. Then, verses 14 to 23, prophecy of the Great Tribulation. Verses 24 to 27, proclamation of the second coming of Christ. Verses 28 to 33, parable of the fig tree. And verses 34 to 37, program for God's people. Now, that's a lot of peas in that pod, wouldn't you think? And so that's what we have in this chapter here. Now, let's look at this, and I'm reading verse 1. And as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples saith unto him, Master, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. Now, I think that this is an illustration of how misunderstandings can arise in putting together gospel records or passages of Scripture. Actually, the question arises here immediately, what's back of all of this? Why did they say this? Well, actually, you'd have to go to Matthew to find that out. We've been through Matthew, so let me just make a passing reference to it. He pronounced a coming desolation upon the temple. And the disciples were puzzled because there was a grandeur and glory about that temple and the surrounding buildings, and they wanted to make sure that he'd noted it. They said, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answering said unto him, Seest thou these great buildings? There shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And he asked them the question. They say to him, do you see these buildings? They want to make sure that he had missed it. And now he says to them, do you really see them? And this is a great truth, by the way, and a great spiritual lesson is here. 
here in downtown Los Angeles, just in the past few years, there's gone up a 40-story building, 42 stories. Right across the way in a block and a half, two 50-story buildings, and catacorned across the street, a 60-story building. And down the street, the greatest downtown shopping area in America. Several skyscrapers there, a big shopping mall, a great department store, two hotels. My friend, I want to tell you, you could ask that question today. Don't you see all these buildings? But the question is, do we really see these buildings? We see their beauty, we see their strength, their stability, and their permanence. Looks to me like they're here for a long time, unless we have a good earthquake or a bad earthquake, so into how you look at it. And that may determine that they'll come down. But actually, all these buildings are temporary, and they're passing away. A true perspective would allow us to see that not one stone's going to be left upon another, only they didn't build them of stone, but mostly concrete and steel. But it's all coming down. Paul stated this great spiritual truth in 2 Corinthians 4.18. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal. But the things which are not seen are eternal. My friend, that is a great truth. Did you know that Nebuchadnezzar walked through great Babylon in his day? And there was a glory about Babylon. And as he walked through it, he says, Is not this great Babylon that I built? Have you ever seen a picture of the ruins of it? Nothing to brag about there. It's all gone, friends. The glory has disappeared. And... Around us here today in Los Angeles, skyscrapers going up. They're coming down too, by the way, because he says they're going to come down. These things are passing away. Do we really see the things today that are eternal? Now, let me move on. That is a great spiritual truth that is there. Verse 3, chapter 13 of Mark. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives... Over against the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew ask him privately. Now, Mark is always putting in a little something that we don't get elsewhere. Now, I didn't know it was these four men who actually were the delegation or the committee that waited on him with the questions. But here they are. And we have said before, this is Peter's gospel. So Peter lets Mark know that it was Peter and James and John and Andrew, they ask him privately, tell us, when shall these things be? What shall be the sign when all these things shall be fulfilled? And these are the only two questions that Mark has, but Matthew has the full questions, three of them. And Dr. Luke answers part of it, that is, when will one stone not be left on another? But the other two questions, what's the sign of the end of the age, and what is the sign of the coming of Christ, then both Mark and Matthew have that. Now, Matthew has it in a great deal more detail than we have it here. But we'll look at Mark's emphasis. Now, you must remember, he's writing to the Romans, and he's going to call attention to that which reveals power, action, and that which 
is dramatic. And friends, there's a great deal of all of that right here. Now let me read, beginning now at verse 5. And Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed lest any man deceive you. And that is the constant warning, a warning against false Christ. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. Now, the warning against false Christ, somebody says, well, that's not pertinent today, is it? I think it's very pertinent right now. You know, there is a danger, and I didn't know just how to emphasize that, but it's a grave danger of being deceived right now about a false Christ. Somebody said, you don't mean it. I certainly do. Some may think that they're immune to this danger. Some of you are listening to me. Let me say this to you. Did you know that the Christ of liberalism today is an antichrist? Not the real Christ. You say, well, I thought they preached the Christ of the Bible. Oh, no, they don't. May I say to you, look at this for a moment. According to their statements, he was not virgin-born. He never performed a miracle. He did not shed his blood on the cross for the sins of the world. He was not raised bodily from the grave. He did not ascend bodily into heaven, and he's not coming again bodily. May I say to you, the Jesus they preach is that kind of Jesus. And do you know that there's no Jesus like that in the Bible? The one in the Bible, why, he was virgin-born. <laughs> he performed miracles. He shed his blood for the sins of the world. He was raised bodily from the grave. He ascended into heaven. He's coming again. Now, that's what the Bible says. And the Bible, which contains the only documents of a historical nature concerning him, claims all these great cardinal facts of the faith. Evidently, the liberal is talking about another Christ, another Jesus. And any other Christ, friends, is Antichrist. Listen to John in 1 John 2.18. Little children, it's the last time. And as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it's the last time. There are a lot of Antichrists. This is one of them I've called your attention to, and there are a lot of phonies around today that are claiming to be Christ. I understand that a founder of a religion here in Southern California is claiming today that he can do what Christ could not do. One of the Beatles claimed that they were more popular than Christ and that they were able to do more than he was able to do for today. There are a lot of antichrists around. Our Lord did well to warn us about that. Now in verse 7, he says, "...and when you shall hear wars and rumors of wars..." Be ye not troubled, for such things must needs be, but the end shall not be yet. Now, I think wars like false Christ characterize the whole age. And no believer should be disturbed by wars, and wars are not the sign of the end of the age. Neither Antichrist nor wars indicate that we're at the end of the age. And when I say Antichrist, I mean all of these false Antichrists. Now, they'll finally come the Antichrist. All of these are pointing to him, of course. Now, in verse 8, and I continue to read, 
For nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be earthquakes in divers places. There shall be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. Isn't it interesting in this day when man feels he's so civilized and he has so many gadgets and he's making the world such a wonderful place, all of a sudden he's discovered that he's polluting the world, that he's going to make it uninhabitable, and that before long, unless he cuts down the population explosion, he's going to starve to death. That's what the Bible says, friends, that would characterize it. It's interesting that this book that men have despised has been so accurate about it. A few years ago, they thought science would solve the problems of the world. It's made problems now that neither science nor the world can solve at all. Even Bernard Shaw had to say, the science to which I pin my faith has failed me. And now he says, you're beholding an atheist who has lost his faith. Oh my, how tragic for an atheist to lose his faith. May I say to you, these are the things that characterize the age. Now, verse 9, he says, "...but take heed to yourselves, for they shall deliver you up to councils." Now, I don't think he's talking about the church here. "...and in the synagogues ye shall be beaten, and ye shall be brought before rulers and kings for my sake. And the gospel must first be published among all nations." Now, what gospel? The gospel of the grace of God? Yes, it's grace, all right, but it's the gospel of the kingdom. And it doesn't mean there are two gospels, as we saw that it was labeled. Our Lord labeled it in the Olivet Discourse, and I think that he must have gone over this. I think in any gospel, you have only a brief account. There's no gospel writer attempts to give us a biography or to cover all of the details of any incident that they are recording. Each one is doing it for a purpose. Now, it's the gospel of the kingdom. That's a facet of the same gospel that we preach today with this distinction. There'll be salvation by the grace of God. And God's never had but one way to save sinners, but by the death of Christ. But very frankly, the emphasis will be here, repent. He's coming, and when they say it in that day, it'll be in the great tribulation period. It'll be accurate, friend. Now, notice this, but when they shall lead you and deliver you up, take no thought beforehand what ye shall speak, neither do ye premeditate. But whatsoever shall be given you in that hour, that speak ye, for it is not ye that speak, but the Holy Ghost. Now, this is no verse for a lazy preacher to use for not preparing a sermon. And I have met the brethren that have said that they use this. I remember a friend of mine down in Texas told me that he was at Temple, Texas one morning waiting. He'd changed trains there, and he was going out to a little town to preach. And there was a black man there with a long Prince Albert coat, and he kept eyeing him. And finally, this man came over and said to him, Are you a preacher? And he said, Yes. And he was walking up and down, going over his notes for his sermon. He says, What you doing? He says, I'm going over my notes for my sermon. He says, You mean that you prepare your sermon beforehand? And this man said, Well, don't you? And the black man said, No, I don't. 
Uh, he said, I wait till I get up there, and the Spirit of God gives me the message. And this man said to him, well, says, suppose that the Spirit of God doesn't give you the message immediately when you get up. What do you do? Oh, he says, I just mess around till he does. There's been a whole lot of messing around today, friends. This is not for that. This is in that day when the 144,000 of the nation Israel are witnesses. This is a message for them in that day. This is not an excuse for you and me not to prepare our Sunday school lesson. Now, will you notice, we find here that there will be betrayal. We've seen that before. And you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. And that's anti-Semitism worldwide. But he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. We've seen that that means that when he puts his seal upon them in that day, they're going to make it through to the end. Now, will you notice, here is the dramatic part. But when ye shall see the abomination of desolation. We've seen that before. That is the beginning of the great tribulation. The first three and a half years of it, comparatively quiet. False peace of the Antichrist. Now, in the midst of it, there appears this abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not. That is, in the holy place. Let him that readeth understand, let them that be in Judea flee to the mountain. Now, don't you see if Mark had said to the Romans, abomination of desolation would stand in the holy place? Well, they'd say, well, where is the holy place? But he says, standing where it shouldn't stand. That's what it should be, of course. And that's more understandable to us today. That is, to a great many of us, we don't understand that the holy place was only given to the nation Israel, and it was a place on the earth. The church hasn't any holy place. Now, and let him that's in the field not turn back again for to take up his garment, but woe to them that are with child, to them that give suck in those days. Now, this is the beginning of the great tribulation. Pray ye that your flight be not in the winter, for in those days shall be affliction such as was not from the beginning of the creation, which God created until this time, neither shall be. You see, this is an intense spirit. Now, we went over this before. And except that the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh should be saved. But for the elect's sake, whom he hath chosen, he hath shortened the days. And then if any man shall say to you, Lo, here is Christ, or lo, he is there, believe him not. For false Christs and false prophets shall arise. Now he gives the sign of his coming. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun shall be darkened, the moon shall not give her light, the stars of heaven shall fall, the powers that are in the heaven shall be shaken. And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And those clouds are not rain clouds up there. They are the glory clouds, that Shekinah glory. And I believe that was the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, as we indicated in Matthew. And verse 27, Then shall he send his angels, shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from the uttermost part of the earth to the uttermost part of heaven. This is not the rapture of the church. He doesn't send angels then to gather them because they're caught up to meet the Lord in the air then. Now, the fig tree, as we've seen before, speaks of the nation Israel. Now, I recognize this disagreement there, and I don't mind these folk disagreeing with us here, thinking that the fig tree is something else. 
But I personally believe that there's good Scripture to make it very clear. After all, the nation Israel is God's timepiece. When you look at the fig tree, he says, now when you look at God's timepiece, it's not G-R-U-N, not B-U-L-O-V-A, not something else, but it's Israel, I-S-R-A-E-L. That is the thing that he's saying here. Now there to watch. Verse 34, For the Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey, who left his house, gave authority to his servants, to every man his work, and commanded the porter to watch. Notice what he says, Watch ye therefore, for ye know not when the master of the house cometh, even at midnight, cock crowing, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say unto you, I say unto all, watch. And that's for you and me today. But the watching is different. Have you ever noticed that watching is very different? You can watch in anxiety. You can watch in fear. But the child of God today is looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing. And that's anticipation and joy. But in that day, there'll be great fear throughout the earth. Now, friends, we've come here to the 14th chapter of the Gospel of Mark, and it's the longest chapter in the Gospel of Mark, 72 verses to be exact. And let me say that we might not have had the kind of action that you were expecting in the last two chapters, although I felt it was there, but we've certainly come to it now. But Jesus is no longer the one performing the action. He's being acted upon by others, both friends and enemies. And the time now has come for him to be delivered up. His earthly ministry is concluded in the fulfillment of the prophecy. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. Now he's delivering himself into the hands of man. Mary anoints him. Judas betrays him. Peter denies him. The Sanhedrin arrests him and he delivers himself into the will of the Father. Now, as we come here into the shadow of the cross, the reverend heart feels as, well, you feel as if you'd like to take the spiritual shoes off of your spiritual feet. There are depths that have not been plumbed here and heights that have not been scaled. And the action of this moment involves the anguish and agony of his soul his hour has come, friends, when you come here. He told his mother there in the wedding in Cana of Galilee, mine hour has not yet come. Well, it's come now. And there is in this chapter and the one that follows, there's a strange agreement of heaven and hell. Light and darkness are going together in the same direction. Righteousness and sin are going to the cross. And God and Satan have decided that Jesus shall be crucified. And there are individual decisions that are converging upon this cross. Still true today, by the way. Now, this chapter, and here is the way we divide it. And I'd like to give this to you. In the first two verses, the chief priests and scribes plot to kill Jesus. And then verses 3 to 9, Mary of Bethany pours ointment upon the head of Jesus. Verses 10 and 11, Judas plans to betray. 
And then in verses 12 through 25, Jesus prepares for the Last Supper and the First Lord's Supper. And then Peter pledges his allegiance, verses 26 through 31. Then in verses 32 to 42, Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then verses 43 to 52, Jesus placed under arrest. And then verses 53 to 65, Jesus put on trial before the Sanhedrin. And then verses 66 through 72, Peter protests that he does not know Jesus. We have a plot, the pouring of the ointment, the plan to betray him, the preparation for the Passover, the pledge of allegiance of Simon Peter, and the prayer of the Lord. He's placed under arrest. He's put on trial. And you have Peter protesting. And again, we have a pod full of peas here, as you can see. Now let's look at this, beginning with verse 1. After two days was the feast of the Passover, and unleavened bread. You see, the Passover was on the 14th day of the first month, at even as the Lord's Passover, is the way that Leviticus 23.5 reads. That's the month generally of April, Nisan. And then you have the Feast of Unleavened Bread was on the fifteenth day of the same month, and it continued for seven days. And in Leviticus 23, 6, and on the fifteenth day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread unto the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. Now, it was, I think, the intention of these eleven rulers to take Jesus at the end of the Passover season, after the crowds had left Jerusalem, and then they intended to put him to death. Let me read that again with this in mind. After two days was the feast of the Passover, and unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by craft and put him to death. But they said, Not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar of the people. That is, not during the Passover season, which is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that would extend for seven days. You see, at the end of that seven days, the people would begin to depart from Jerusalem, and at that time they'd reach out and put their hands on him. Now, we find here that the reason they didn't want to touch him during the feast days was lest there be an uproar of the people. The crowds were with the Lord Jesus. The common people heard him gladly. He fed and healed them. And then notice verse 3, "...and being in Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, there came a woman, having an alabaster box of ointment, of spikenard, very precious. She broke the box and poured it on his head." This is a lovely thing. And John's gospel places this incident six days before the Passover. You'd go back to John 12, you'd find that's true. But the question arises sometimes, have Matthew and Mark erred in placing it right before the Passover? Well, let's be very candid here and say that Matthew and Mark, neither of these two writers are attempting to give a chronological order. Their obvious purpose is to place 
this lovely incident next to the dark deed of Judas. And they are making a contrast here. And that's the reason they're brought together like this. There's no attempt, either Matthew or Mark, to give you a series of events in a chronological way to give you a biography of Christ. They're just not doing that. And what we have here, therefore, is a very vivid contrast of the conflict of light and darkness. Light in the act of Mary of Bethany. And by the way, John tells us that the woman was Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And this is the thing that is quite interesting, I think, to note at this particular point. Now let's read on here, because this is important. And there came some that had indignation within themselves and said, Why was this waste of ointment made? Now, John also tells us in his account that Judas led in the defection, and it caused others to follow along. And in verse 5, For it might have been sold for more than 300 pence, and have been given to the poor, and they murmured against her. Now, the pious suggestion that the proceeds be used for charitable purposes covered up the real reason. Judas wanted to appropriate it, of course, for his own selfish ends. And there's a lot of that being done even today in many ways in Christian work. And we find here that this man raises that objection. And he uses that, oh, it might have been used for a very pious way. But the question is, had they given it to Judas, is that where it would have gone? Verse 6, And Jesus said, Let her alone. Why trouble ye her? She hath wrought a good work on me, for ye have the poor with you always. And whensoever ye will, ye may do them good, but me ye have not always. Now, if they were sincere, there'd be many opportunities to help the poor and they could avail themselves of it. And the presence of the poor is one of the characteristics of this age. There will be no elimination of poverty until Jesus comes. This idea today that you can eliminate poverty by passing out dollars or checks is the biggest mistake, of course, in the world. That's not the way that you're going to eliminate it. There's so many other things that are wrong in the world That'll have to be made right first. Now, notice what our Lord says here in verse 8. She hath done what she could. She has come aforehand to anoint my body to the burying. Now, she's done what she could. And that's all God's ever asked any man to do. But the important thing to note here is that Mary had a spiritual discernment which was sadly lacking even in the apostles at this particular time. She anointed his body for the burial. Just think of this. This poor, frail woman, she stood on the fringe of the events which were leading to the cross and let the Lord Jesus know that she understood. May I say to you that none of the apostles sensed this, but she did. And the fragrance of the box of ointment she broke that day has been borne across the centuries by the Holy Spirit unto our day, and it still fills hearts with its sweetness 
even at the present hour. And I trust right now the fragrance of this box of ointment might be wafted in by radio where you are and see this lovely thing that she did. And our Lord added this. He said, Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial unto her. And the aroma of the alabaster box fills the world where the gospel goes. I wonder today, so easy to read this, and it become meaningless to us. But have any of us broken our alabaster box upon Jesus, that there might be a fragrance in our lives, and it might be a blessing to others? And I think that maybe if some broke the alabaster box of ointment, it would be to help the poor. I'm wondering today if those that are God's people are really doing what they should do today. Somebody needs to break their alabaster box of ointment. Now, will you notice we come here to verse 10 and 11, and right next to this, this lovely thing that she did, and the light of it, the love of it, and right next to it we have here the plan of Judas to betray our Lord. And Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went unto the chief priests to betray him unto them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought how he might conveniently betray him. Now, this man Judas, his act is an act of darkness. And it's right down next to this lovely thing that Mary did. But the thing that we have here is this man plotting now to put Jesus to death. Now, he's going to wait. That is, the plot was that they would wait till it was convenient to betray him. And you see, our Lord upset the apple cart. You find that in the Gospel of John. Our Lord, you remember, said to him, what you do, do quickly. And Judas rushed out. And he looked up the Pharisees and he said, you better go get him now because our plot's been discovered. Because he told me that what I do, I better do quickly and he may leave town. And they got the soldiers immediately and they went out and arrested him. Well, let's notice what we're told here. Our Lord now is preparing for the Passover. I'm reading verse 12. And the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover, his disciples said unto him, where wilt thou that we go and prepare that thou mayest eat the Passover? Now, again, we have something here that's quite interesting. The Passover was to be eaten with unleavened bread, and then seven days of unleavened bread followed. I was in Israel at the time of the Passover, and then the hotel I stayed in, in Haifa, we had unleavened bread for the next seven days. And I want to tell you, friends, I got pretty tired of that bread. I like hot biscuits, too. And that unleavened bread got very monotonous. But the rest of the food was delicious. I enjoyed the way they fixed lamb there. You can't help but recognize that this is an area where they raise lamb and there's been no better picture of him than the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Now, the disciples, even here, they were meticulous 
in following the letter of the Mosaic law. And they want to know where we're going to eat the Passover. Where wilt thou that we go and prepare that thou mayest eat the Passover? You see, they're going to do it right. That is according to the Mosaic law. And he sendeth forth two of his disciples and saith unto them, Go ye into the city, and there shall meet you a man bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wheresoever he shall go in, say ye to the goodman of the house, The master saith, Where is the guest chamber, where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? Now, again, I think this is a revelation of the human side of our Lord, and it also reveals the fact that there were those that loved him at this time and that they were preparing the Passover for him. And it reveals the fact that our Lord was the omniscient God, by the way. And he says here, the goodman of the house was evidently some unknown follower of our Lord. And there's no reason to doubt that there had been a previous offer of the guest room to Jesus. I'm of the opinion that sometime in those three years of his public ministry, this man had come to the Lord Jesus, and he provided this room for him. I think he told him, he said, now when you come up to Jerusalem for the Passover, I have this for you. This room will be prepared for you. This was what this man did. I tell you, this was a wonderful service he performed. You can do so many things for the Lord Jesus. This is what this man did. Now, he says here, Jesus celebrated the Passover. Now, notice, here in a borrowed room. And he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared there make ready for us. This man had it ready for him. And I think there had been a previous commitment on this. I think this man was a follower of our Lord. I don't think you need to read in here something that is not here at all. I think that the host on this occasion should not be blamed for not being there to wash the feet of the disciples either. It was a private Passover. You remember, our Lord had said, I shall eat the Passover with my disciples. And this man said, I've got a room for you. And it would be private. And he'd not interfere. Now, you'll recall that we'd had a former experience like this with the little donkey for the triumphal entry. And his disciples went forth, came into the city, and found as he had said unto them, and they made ready the Passover. And I think that there had been the arrangement made for the little donkey. You see, our Lord knew what he was doing and made the arrangements as he went along. Now we come to the Passover. In verse 17, And in the evening he cometh with the twelve. And I want you to notice that he came in the evening. That's when the Passover began at sundown. And he came in, I think, under cover of darkness. He's not going to force their hand until he's ready. But at the time, he'll deliver himself into their hand. And they'll crucify him, not according to their schedule, but according to his schedule, by the way. This is a very marvelous thing. In the evening, he cometh with the twelve. And this was a lovely occasion. He ate the Passover leisurely with them. And very informally, by the way, we've made the Lord's Supper on Sunday morning a very formal service. 
And you'll find out he ate the Passover supper here with them, and the next meal he had with them was breakfast on the shores of the Sea of Galilee after his resurrection. And I think this was a wonderful time of fellowship. I personally do not criticize church dinners in and of themselves. I think they can serve a wonderful purpose. But the type of church dinners we have today, they're not quite what they should be. It's a wonderful time for people to meet and have fellowship around the person of Christ. And when he's not the center and we're having it just to have a gay old time and then call it fellowship, I think we've missed the entire point. And I think that it's far from being what it should be. And it's an occasion to meet around the person of Christ. And that was the purpose of this Passover feast, by the way. And as they sat and did eat, Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, One of you which eateth with me shall betray me. They began to be sorrowful. They say unto him, One by one is it I, and another said, Is it I? All of them knew they were capable of doing it, friends. If you have not yet discovered that you are totally depraved and that you're a sinner, friends, that you're not a good person, you're a sinner, and you're thoroughly capable of turning your back on God. If you haven't discovered that, you haven't discovered very much. I'm afraid we've got a lot of people in the church today that their spiritual IQ is pretty low. In fact, we've got a lot of spiritual morons. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. They don't recognize that they're lost. These men could say, as did I. He answered and said unto them, It's one of the twelve that dippeth with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goeth as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Good were it for that man if he'd never been born. And that's Judas Iscariot that made this decision. The responsibility of Judas was great, for he had the opportunity of being with Jesus for three years. And you remember the psalmist, Psalm 41.9, Yea, mine own familiar friend, in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. He pointed out Judas Iscariot, and I think Judas Iscariot left at this particular juncture, and then he instituted a new feast on the dying embers of a fading feast. He reared a new monument, not a monument in brass or marble, but one that takes these elements that perish so easily, bread and wine. You see, the Passover had looked forward to his coming as the Passover lamb, and now the Lord's Supper looks back to his death. The bread speaks of his body that was broken. You see, not a bone in his body was broken. Notice now as I turn here and begin reading. Verse 22, And as they did eat, Jesus took bread and blessed and brake it and gave to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said unto them, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. Verily I say unto you, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine, until that day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Now, there's several things here that are, I think, interesting and important. The Passover cup 
went around seven times during the Passover feast. And during that time, they would sing one of these great Hallel psalms. And it was the seventh time around, which apparently he did not drink. But that's the time that he instituted the Lord's Supper with it. And that Lord's Supper now looks back to what he did for us on the cross 1,900 years ago. The Passover looked forward to his coming. But the Passover will be restored for the millennial kingdom. We're going to see that, especially in Ezekiel. And the reason, I think, for it is that it will in turn look back at that time to his coming as it had looked forward to his coming. I see no reason why if it couldn't look forward, it could also look backward. And that would bring out during the millennial kingdom the real meaning of the Passover, by the way. And Paul said, Christ, our Passover, is offered for us. And when we come to verse 26, we find Peter here pledges his allegiance. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. And Jesus saith unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night, for it's written, I'll smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. But after that I am risen, I will go before you into Galilee. But Peter said unto him, Although all shall be offended, yet will not I. And Jesus saith unto him, Verily I say unto thee that this day, even in this night, before the cock crow twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. But he spake the more vehemently, If I should die with thee, I'll not deny thee in any wise. Likewise also said they all. By the way, not only Simon Peter, but the others. And we find here first that Simon Peter pledges his allegiance. And he was sincere, but he did not know, of course, his own weakness. That is the problem with most of us, that we do not know our own weakness today. And I personally believe that you don't find out about this in psychology. I think the only place that you can really see yourself is in the Word of God. That's the only mirror we have. I want to say that and I want to read here just a little excerpt of what is being put out today. This is put out by a Christian organization, and it gives, I think, the wrong impression. It talks about the girl that had this problem, and she went to her pastor, and now I'm reading. After several talks together, the pastor realized he was not equipped to help her as much as she could be helped. He referred Betty to a competent Christian psychologist, one who, as a professional counselor, led Betty into a deeper understanding of the sources of her anxiety, many of them stemming from childhood experiences long since forgotten but recalled and understood under the guidance of a skilled helper. The result? A Christian teen released from the grip of emotional problems and given a new relationship with herself, others, and the Lord. May I say, that type of a thing reads like Grimm's fairy story 
and they lived happily ever after. Now, I happen to know that the Christian psychologist is no more competent to solve these problems today than the average pastor is. And we've been, I think, deluded today to believe that the Christian psychologist was able to say hocus-pocus, acracadabra, and somehow or another the problems are solved. My friend, may I say to you, none of us know the depths of the human heart, and only the Word of God can let us see what a sinner we really are. And that was the problem here with Betty, by the way, and that's the problem with Vernon, and that's the problem with you. And I do not know who her pastor was, but I think he could have helped her had he known the Word of God. My feeling is today that we put a wrong emphasis, and as a result, I find a great many people that get one problem solved. When they go to a Christian psychologist, they come away with two more problems, and the last estate of the man is worse than the first. Let's be very clear. The only solution to a problem is the Lord. You don't solve the problem and then be able to go to the Lord. You go to the Lord, and He is the chief and the great physician. And by the way, a very good psychologist. And He today can help us. He alone knows us. And He is the only one in the final analysis. I am rather insistent in saying this, as you can see, because I think it's important today that somebody say it. We are finding that a great many that are making merchandise of the ills of folk that actually only the Word of God can solve, and only God himself. We'd only learn to go to him and cast ourselves upon him and recognize that we've got bad childhood. We've got bad everything, friends. But he's a Savior for us, and we can go to him. How wonderful it is to have someone to go with. Well, now notice here that we find that the Lord Jesus now tells them that he's going before into Galilee. He announces his resurrection. He said, the sheep are going to be scattered, but I'm going on into Galilee after my resurrection. I'll meet you there. And Simon Peter couldn't let it go. He said, though they'd be offended, I won't be offended. And he just didn't know. Here again what he's saying. And our Lord prepares him for what's coming. But he lets him know that he is going to stand by him. And the Lord will stand by you in these cases that come to us like this. Even in the time of our most desperate and dastardly hour, and it certainly was that for this man. Now we find when we come to verse 32, they now arrive at Gethsemane. And let me read verse 32 here. Our Lord prays there. They came to a place which was named Gethsemane. He saith to his disciples, Sit ye here while I shall pray. And he taketh with him Peter and James and John, began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy, and saith unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. Now we have here them coming to a very familiar place. 
whether it's the Garden of Gethsemane as it's known today, I do not know. I'm of the opinion that it should be on the other side of the mountain. I think that that is really immaterial. And we find this is a place Judas knew because it was a place that they apparently came to. Our Lord never spent a night inside the city of Jerusalem. He always went out to this place. And you'll notice that we have here, he takes with him again Peter, James, and John. He lost one man, Judas. Now there are eight disciples out on the outside. He takes the three with him, and they brought a step closer to him in this hour. And he went to pray. And the language indicates, I think he faced a sore ordeal in the Garden of Gethsemane. Well, you notice it says here, and he began to be sore amazed. Well, that word that's translated here by amazed is startled. And it also is a word here that means stunned. And when it says that he was very heavy, he was distressed. And now notice verse 34. And he saith unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. Now, this was a travail of soul that was as great, if not greater, than actually the suffering of the body on the cross. The question arises, did he face the tempter again in the garden? I think he did. You read what we had to say in our book on Matthew, moving through Matthew. I must be very frank and say, though, I can only stand here on the fringe. There are mysteries of the garden I do not understand. And I consider it really audacious today. It would even be blasphemous if the folk really knew what they were singing when they say, I'll go with him through the garden. I'm sorry, friend, if you don't mind, if I beg off, I can't go with him through the garden. You don't know how weak I am. <laughs> you don't know how stumbling and bumbling I really am, and therefore I can't go with him through the garden, but I'm going to stand at the edge and watch and pray, because that's what he said to do that you enter not into temptation. Now, will you notice he went forward a little, fell on the ground, and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. And you notice Mark says that it was the hour which might pass from it. It was not death, really, he dreaded, but rather the hour of the cross. It was that moment when sin was put on him and he was made sin for us. That was the awful thing, and that was what he went through. And the hour and the cup, here he makes synonymous. And we're told, the writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews 5, 7, and 8, "...who in the days of his flesh..." when he'd offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Now, the three disciples that were there, the three apostles, he cometh and findeth them sleeping, and saith unto Peter, Simon, sleepest thou, couldst not thou watch one hour? 
Watch ye and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. The spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. And the three here were not alarmed. They could sleep through it all. And this man, Peter, wasn't even disturbed that he was going to deny Christ. He just went right off to sleep. He should have been watching and praying. And that was the way to avoid temptation. And it is for us today. Now, you'll notice he goes back and he prays the first prayer. And they went to sleep again. And they had no explanation for their failure. You see, the flesh cannot be trusted. And then there apparently was a lapse of time here because they must have had a brief sleep before he was arrested. And we find in verse 41, "...and he cometh the third time." and saith unto them, Sleep on now, and take your rest. It's enough. The hour is come. Behold, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. And then there was a lapse of time. Rise up, let us go. Lo, he that betrayeth me is at hand. And immediately while he yet spake, cometh Judas, one of the twelve, and with him a great multitude of swords and staves from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. I see they've come out to do the thing that they said they would not do, not during the feast days. Now, this is the basis act of treachery ever recorded. It's foul and loathsome. Judas knew our Lord's accustomed place here, retirement, and he led the enemy there. Now, notice verse 44. And he that betrayed him had given them a token, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss... That same is he. Take him and lead him away. Well, a kiss is a badge of love and affection. And Judas used it to betray Christ. And I think this makes his act actually more dastardly and repugnant. And it's also well to observe that our Lord in his humanity was not actually different from other men. As you observe him and look at him, he needed to be identified in a crowd here. And now we notice in verse 45, And as soon as he was come, he goeth straightway to him and saith, Master, Master, and kissed him. And you'll notice he called him Master. No one can call Jesus Lord but by the Holy Spirit, Paul says. And now we're told, verse 46, And they laid their hands on him and took him. Now this marks the moment that Jesus was delivered into the hands of sinful man. He yields himself now to go to the cross. Now we find that Simon Peter tempts to come to his rescue. And one of them that stood by drew a sword and smote a servant of the high priest, cut off his ear. Jesus answered and said unto them, Are ye come out as against a thief with swords and with staves to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and ye took me not, but the Scriptures must be fulfilled." And they all forsook him and fled. And that was the scripture that needed to be fulfilled, by the way. If you'll notice that Simon Peter's the one here that really cut off his ear. We're told that over in John, the 18th chapter. And even told the servant's name. And Luke was Malchus. And Simon Peter was a good fisherman, but a pretty sorry swordsman. He got an ear. He intended to get the neck, by the way. He missed it. And they all forsook him. That's the fulfillment of prophecy now. And then we have this incident that a certain young man 
having a linen cloth cast about his naked body. And a young man laid hold on him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. There's always speculation who he is. Some think that he was probably, well, he was Paul the Apostle. And then some think it's John Mark. I personally think that if we have to make a choice, be more apt to be John Mark. Now we are told here that they led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests and elders. And when we get over to Luke and John, I want to take up this trial of Jesus in detail. The thing here that I would like to emphasize at this particular section of it, because it's so startling here, and when they brought him in, they brought him, you know, before the Sanhedrin, and they did it at night. And we're told here, verse 60, And the high priest stood by in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? Now, when they brought the lies against him, he didn't even attempt to answer it. They were amazed at that. We're told, But he held his peace and answered nothing. Again the high priest asked him and said unto him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? That is, are you the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God? And Jesus said, I am. Now, don't tell me Jesus didn't teach his deity, friends. Under oath here, he certainly claimed to be God. And not only that, he said, Ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Now, I tell you, the high priest understood what he said. The high priest ran his clothes and saith, what need we any further witness? And by the way, there's a law which we're going to see when we return back to the Old Testament that said the high priest was never to tear or rend his garment. You've heard the blasphemy. What think ye? And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. Well, either he was accurate or he was not accurate, friends. And if he's not accurate, well, they had some ground for it. But if he's accurate, then they should have done a little more investigating of it. Now, this chapter closes on the note of the denial of Simon Peter. The thing our Lord said he would do that night, a little wisp of a maid there caused him to deny the Lord Jesus. And we're told in verse 71, when this maid came after him the second time, he began to curse and to swear, saying, I know not this man of whom ye speak. And the second time the cock crew, and Peter called to mind the word that Jesus said unto him before the cock crow twice, Thou shalt deny me thrice. Now notice this, and when he thought thereon, he wept. <laughs> this man could repent of his sin. That's the real test, by the way. And these were tears of genuine repentance. Remember, it was Peter who wrote in First Peter 1, 5, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last day. He knew the Lord had kept him.